Remain standing for our gospel lesson from John 15. Listen carefully, because this is the gospel of our God. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them in the fire... And they are burned, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments And abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of your word, which we confess is truth and which sanctifies us. Do your good work in us as as a congregation this morning, meeting in your name. Amen. Please be seated. You can actually turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. It's really good. It's especially good to see you all here this morning and to worship with you, to gather with the people of God around his word and around his table. And with all that's going on uh, in our world and in our congregation, in in our church here, Christ the King Church, I decided to preach a sermon on a text that forces us to do a couple of things. Number one, it forces us to step back and look at the big picture of what God is doing in history, in creation, from Genesis all the way to the end. Number two, it forces us to pay attention to what's going on in the spiritual realm. We can call it the unseen realm. Revelation provides a framework for thinking about everything that has ever happened and everything that will happen which is a lot. And we must remember, especially during times of turmoil, like the turmoil we are experiencing now, that the spiritual realm, the unseen realm, is where the action is. Christ is seated on the throne. We can't see that with these eyes, but we can see it with the eyes of faith. So so Revelation jerks us out of our earthly perspective on this world. It lifts our eyes beyond current events and political powers and pandemics 
and elections and economic crises and mask mandates. It points us instead to spiritual realities, to the principalities and the powers in the air, and most important, to the Christ who rules over heaven and earth on his throne in heaven. So, so let's take our minds off the here and now, and, and let's take a view of things from heaven, if you will. Let's, let's widen the scope this morning and look at the sweeping story that God is telling. Let's, let's take our hearts and our minds off of temporal matters, at least primarily, and fix them on things that are eternal. Now, most of the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 4, is composed of a vision given to the Apostle John. And in the first verse of Revelation 4, John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, speaking to me saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. So he's going to give him a God perspective on everything, on all of history, essentially. And Revelation 12 records one of the visions that John sees and writes down. It's a highly symbolic, cosmic vision that takes us back to the beginning of time and then brings us forward all the way to the church age, to the time after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. And it gives us a view of it all from, from God's view. It shows us who the victor is, who our enemy really is, and what we are to do and how we are to think about those great realities, ultimate realities. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So these first two verses in Revelation 12 introduce us to the first main character, the woman. But, but who is this woman? Who is this woman clothed with the sun who, who uses the moon as her footstool and who wears a crown of 12 stars? Now, at first, at first glance, it's tempting to think that this woman is Mary, right? The mother of Jesus. We find in verses 4 and 5 that you know, this woman gives birth to Jesus, the Messiah, the child. But if we look closely, we discover the woman can't be Mary, at least not Mary only. In verse 6, after the woman has given birth, what does she do? She flees into the wilderness. And verse 13 says that she was persecuted by the dragon. And in verse 17, it says that the woman's other offspring were also persecuted by the dragon. So her offspring are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So what's this tell us about the identity of the woman? Who gives birth to Jesus? Well, it includes Mary, but we can't limit it to Mary. The, the, the woman in this vision is the people of God. The first part of this vision 
the woman is the old covenant people of God. She gives birth to the Messiah. But in the second half of the vision, you'll notice the woman has become the new covenant people of God. In verse 17, she's giving birth to followers of Christ. So the sun, moon, and 12 stars in verse 1 are are symbols for the nation of Israel. The, The 12 stars represent the 12 tribes. But this woman's history doesn't just go back to Old Covenant Israel. Her story actually extends all the way back to Genesis 3. In the Garden of Eden, remember, there was a woman that God made from the man. And there was also a dragon in the garden who deceived that woman. And what did God tell that dragon in Genesis 3 after he had led the woman into sin and the man? It's recorded in Genesis 3. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and read with me. Take a look at it together. An important verse. In Genesis 3, 15, God tells the dragon that the woman is going to have a child. And, And God makes a promise He says that while the dragon would crush the child's heel, the child would crush the dragon's head. Genesis 3.15. This is what God tells Satan after Adam and Eve sinned. God said, I will put enmity between you, Satan, dragon, and the woman. Enmity means hostility. War. I will make war between you and the woman and between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. He, so one of these offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the offspring of the woman will bruise Satan's head and crush it. And Satan will only bruise his heel. So who is the woman in Genesis 3.15? Well, it's not simply Eve. It's it's the whole people of God from Eve forward. It includes Eve, just as it includes Mary. But the woman in Genesis 3.15 is the whole people of God. The woman in Revelation 12 is also the whole people of God. The woman's story begins with Eve. It includes Israel's history. It climaxes with Mary a faithful Israelite woman, and it continues throughout the church age. The woman gave birth to Jesus, and she continues to give birth to those who follow Jesus, who believe in his name. And so Revelation 12 is the fulfillment of the promise that God made all the way back at the beginning. In verse 2, John says that the woman in his vision is giving birth. She's at the end of her pregnancy, all right? And the woman had been pregnant with the Messiah for thousands of years. Ever since God made this promise all the way back in Genesis 3. So all of Old Testament history from Genesis 3 on is the history of this pregnant woman. The pregnant people of God who in the fullness of time gave birth to the seed. The offspring. The savior of the world. But... Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Verse 2 focuses on the time right before Jesus was born. In verse 2, she's crying out in labor pains. And then in verse 3, John sees another heavenly sign. And another sign appeared in heaven. 
Behold, a great fiery or red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. So the New King James Version says fiery red because kind of both of those ideas are present in the word. He's red from the blood of the martyrs. And down in verse 9, he's identified as the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And so his deception of the whole world is another allusion back to the Garden of Eden. Because remember, what does he do to Eve? He deceives her. So he's the deceiver in Genesis 3. He's the deceiver in Revelation 12. Satan has seven heads and ten horns. And each head is, it has a crown, a diadem on it uh, with jewels. It's a hideous sight. The devil is pictured as a, as a grotesque prince. The seven heads and the seven crowns and ten horns symbolize power and sovereignty, particularly in the book of Daniel. So this vision acknowledges that Satan has a certain amount of power and even we can say authority given to him by God. After all, we, we know Jesus does call Satan the prince of this world. And even after Jesus ascends to his throne in heaven, Paul calls the devil the God, little g, God of this age. So Satan is a little g God of this age, a little p prince of this world. Jesus is the big g God and the big p prince. So whatever diminished power Satan has, it's been given to him by the king of heaven and earth, who is risen and reigning. The end of verse 12 indicates that this limited power that Satan has won't be his to enjoy forever. A time's coming when the devil will have no authority, no influence, no power, no freedom, nowhere to roam. First part of verse 4 says, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. This is a somewhat controversial passage, I guess. A lot of, a lot of interpreters might say that this refers to the angels who were thrown down or you know who who went with Satan and his rebellion. In the book of Daniel, believers are compared to stars, so it's people. Daniel 12:3, those who are wise shall shine like the stars forever and ever. So it's God's created humanity that are the stars. And Paul picks up on this imagery in Philippians 2. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like lights or like stars in the world. So in the Bible, saints shine like the stars. And Daniel 8 predicts that some of these stars will be killed For their faith. Be persecuted. Put to death. Daniel 8, 7 and 8, 10 say that some stars will be cast down to the ground and trampled. And Revelation 12 teaches us that the devil is the one casting stars down to the ground. Satan is always behind that. 
throughout the world ever since the cross of Christ. And, and make no mistake, it's still going on. We read in the history books uh, the, the persecution of the early church. But in the 20th century, the church was persecuted numerically more than any other century. So, so what Revelation is describing here, what Daniel was describing is still going on throughout the world. Oftentimes we're, we're shielded from that, so it's good for us to, to read those stories, to pray through the calendar that you're sent every week on the persecuted church standing in the gap. The second half of verse 4 says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So the woman is about to give birth to Jesus. And standing there right in front of her is the dragon, the devil. He can, he can already taste how delicious it's going to be to consume this child, to devour the Christ, the Messiah. The sole purpose of this dragon is to destroy the purposes of God. The, the devil's all-consuming, obsessive desire is to defeat God. It's the only thing he thinks about to the point of extreme insanity. It's the only thing he cares about. It occupies his thoughts day and night, not even giving him time to think about what he knows, but deceives himself into not knowing is going to happen. Every day, all day, the devil is consumed with the thought of destroying the people and purposes of God. And in verse 4, he's just waiting for Jesus to be born so that he can devour the Savior of mankind. This, the, this child is mankind's only hope, and the devil is intent on destroying that hope. In Matthew 2, if you know your Bibles, who in Matthew 2 does the devil use to try to devour the child? Do you remember? Herod, that's right. Herod the Great. The, the devil's pawn. Satan influenced Herod to kill all the little boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. The dragon had his basis covered. He didn't care who had to die as long as the Christ died. But then verse 5 says, She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. So verse 5 goes straight from the birth of Jesus to the, uh, the ascension of Jesus, his, his going up to heaven. It skips over his life, death, and resurrection. And the reason for this is that the focus of this vision is what happens to the people of God after Jesus returns to heaven and until he returns to earth. So verse 6 returns to the woman, the people of God. Verse 6, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God and that they should feed her there 1,200 60 days. Verse 6 is a summary of the rest of the chapter, verses 7 to 17. The rest of this chapter focuses on Satan's work, goals, purposes against God and against his church. So verse 6 highlights that God will take care of his saints. He'll make sure that they're nourished, provided for, 
God won't necessarily remove them from all the afflictions, but he'll prepare a place for them in the midst of their suffering. He'll be their refuge and their strength. He'll be their spiritual sustenance as they endure trials of various kinds. And in verses 7 to 9, we read about the cosmic battle between Michael and this dragon. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. That's obviously support for the other interpretation that that the stars being cast down are the fallen angels. It's possible that there's a double meaning there. But... The point here, this war between the angels and demons began during the earthly ministry of Jesus, and it reaches its climax at the death and resurrection of Jesus. The devil and his fallen angels, the demons, were being thrown down in a particular climactic way during the ministry of Jesus, but they were finally and definitively cast down, thrown down to the earth, when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to his throne in heaven. So Jesus began his ministry by overcoming Satan in the wilderness for 40 days. That's, that's, that's at the very beginning of his ministry. And after that, everywhere Jesus went, he cast out demons. At, at one point, you remember, Jesus sent 72 disciples he sent him out to preach and to cast out demons, it says. And then Luke 10, 17 and 18 records what happened when they returned from that mission. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So this epic battle between Michael and the dragon was going on during Jesus' earthly ministry. The the dragon and and his minions threw everything they had at Jesus during those three, three and a half years. But But the accuser of the brethren was defeated. The deceiver of the world was cast down to earth. The final blow to the devil was the cross of Jesus Christ, the cross of this child, the dragon's decisive defeat came during the death, resurrection, and ascension of the seed of the woman. So the thing you must always remember when being tempted or afflicted by Satan and his demons is this. The battle has already been won for you because you are in Jesus. It's done. It's as done as it could be for you. The battle has been won. Victory is yours. Your ancient foe 
has been defeated. The dragon and his angels have no power over you. The, the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. So you can conquer Satan by the blood of the Lamb. Because the blood of the Lamb has already conquered Satan. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who ascended, I'm sorry, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. So on what basis do believers conquer Satan? Look in the text and find the answer. We, we certainly don't conquer on the basis of our good works, right? The, the sobering reality of verse 10 is that Satan really does have legitimate accusations to make against you and against me all the time if we're on our own and not in Christ. If your victory in Christ were dependent on you and what you could accomplish and offer, then you would lose. You wouldn't be able to conquer at all, ever. Satan would be able to conquer you and me with his accusations. So I ask again, on what basis do believers conquer Satan? The answer is in verse 11. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's how we conquer. And that's equally true for every single believer who has ever lived. The basis of your spiritual victory is what Jesus did on the cross. Your your guilt is gone. And it's gone because of what Jesus did for you and me on the cross. My guilt's gone. Your guilt is gone. Your sin is forgiven only because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. But it is forgiven. The penalty for your sin and mine was taken away at the cross fully. Nothing left over. Sin's power over you was destroyed at the cross. It only has power that you give it now. The head of the dragon was crushed by the blood of the lamb who died for you on a cross. So you can have victory over the world the flesh, and the devil. On a day-to-day and minute-by-minute basis, only because of the cross of Christ. And not at all because of anything you have to offer God in yourself. So the blood of the Lamb defeated the devil once and for all. The blood of Jesus threw Satan from heaven to earth, and then it threw him into the temper tantrum that has been going on for about 2,000 years. That's what Revelation is really about. It's about Satan's temper tantrum against the church. It's still going on. Satan's upset. He's furious. His attempt to devour the Christ backfired. He got Jesus 
murdered, but then Jesus rose from the dead. And now the blood that Jesus shed on the cross that Satan put him on, not ultimately, God sent him to the cross, but the, the death that Satan was thinking that he was mainly orchestrating has the power to forgive your sins and defeat your guilt, which was the weapon, the main weapon that, that Satan had against us. The dragon dug his own grave. He fell into his own pit. The blood of Jesus, you see, has freed you from all of his schemes, all of his accusations against you, all of his accusations against you having to do with your past sins that you know you're forgiven of. But Satan does not want you to think that you are forgiven of. The blood of Jesus trumps your sin and your shame. It overshadows it. It deals with it. It conquers it. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, so all your guilt is gone. And the basis of your victory over sin and Satan is the blood. And this victory belongs to those who belong to Jesus. It's yours because you believe in his name. Simply believe in his name. And it's yours every minute of every day, no matter what you do, as long as you continue to cling to him. So believe it and claim it as your own in the midst of your battles. And the way you make this victory your own, the way you experience this victory that belongs to you in Christ, is by the word of your testimony and by not loving your life. By the word of your testimony and by not loving your life. That's, that's how you experience this victory that Christ has won for you. That's what the end of verse 11 says. So what's your word of testimony? Do you know how to talk about the word of your testimony? In other words, do you know how to talk about Jesus with others? You don't, you don't have to be a martyr to do that. Maybe we could say that's, in some ways, the ultimate testimony. But are you comfortable with talking about God and, and what He has done for you and in you? How often do you talk about your faith with others and your relationship with Jesus about others? If you don't feel comfortable talking with other Christians, about God's work in your life, then, then how are you ever going to be able to talk to unbelievers about what God has done for you in Jesus? If you're embarrassed or uncomfortable talking about Jesus now, then, then are you sure that you're going to be able to stand firm in the faith when you're persecuted for it? Just as there's power in the blood, there's also power in the word of your testimony of what God has done. Your testimony about Jesus. So, so learn how to talk. Ask God to help you grow in talking about the cross of Christ and how it's saved you and transformed your life. How it's changed everything. Be eager to share with others what God has done for you and how His Spirit 
is working in you. It's the most important thing for you to talk about. And when you stop worrying about what everyone thinks but God, when you be, then you'll begin talking about your faith with others. You'll begin to conquer the devil in new ways. So the other way you experience victory in Christ is by not loving your life. That's one of the hardest things to do. We love our lives. Do you love your life? I know I do love mine too much. Every time I read this verse, it convicts me. Do you think about earthly things, you know, the earth and earthly things more than you think about heaven and heavenly things? Are you like Demas in 2 Timothy 4 who loved this world? Think about how tiny of a fraction this life is when you compare it with eternity. How tiny of a fraction of eternity it is. Jesus conquered the dragon because he loved not his life, even unto death. He took up his cross and obeyed his Father. And when you stop loving your life, when I stop loving my life, we free ourselves up to experience the abundant life that Jesus gives to those who don't love their lives. So so if you don't love your life, you'll get a better life from Jesus. When, When you stop loving your life, you free yourself from worry, anger, resentment, because it relativizes everything that's going on in your life. When you stop loving your life, you start loving others with a humble and sincere heart. When you stop loving your life, you realize that your life is not about you. When you stop loving your life, you put yourself in a position to honor God in a way that you can't if you love your life. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Those in heaven can rejoice, obviously, that Satan has been kicked out for good. He doesn't have a place there anymore at the, at the table or at the council. But those on earth need to watch out. That's what the text says, because Satan has been thrown down, and he has great wrath. He's upset. He's in a rage. He's lashing out in anger and frustration and insanity. He's writhing all over the place like a snake whose head's been crushed. The victory of Christ through the cross has made it clear To Satan, although he's self-deceived, that his time is running out. It's short, the text says. However much longer Satan has, even if it's a thousand more years, a hundred thousand more years, it doesn't matter. However much time he has, it pales in comparison to the eternity that he'll spend 
in hell where he will have no power, no authority, no influence, no schemes to carry out, no souls to devour, no ability to, see, to deceive the whole world, as the text says he is doing even after the ascension of Christ. So how does, how does the dragon respond to this, to his defeat? Well, he responds by going after the woman. That's his only choice, given his nature. Verses 13 to 17. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth and spewed out. Verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the dragon wanted to devour the child, but that plan backfired at the cross. The devil ended up losing his place in heaven, and now, ironically, the child is on the throne in heaven, the heaven that Satan was cast out of. Unable to touch the child now, the devil has his sights set on the woman who gives birth to the child. So Revelation 12 covers the entirety of human history in broad strokes. It takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden where we first meet the woman and the dragon and, we, and where we first hear the promise of the child to be born of the woman. And the chapter ends... Where things are today, but it gives us a glimpse of where they will be until Jesus returns. The defeated dragon in his rage. Yes, able to do some things that God allows him to do. Making war with the woman and her offspring. Afflicting and accusing those who keep the commandments of God and who have the testimony of Jesus. But, but the message of Revelation 12 is that God is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over all of this, over the whole history and all the details within that history. The story here is not what Satan can do or is doing or will do. The story here is what God has done, is doing, and will continue to do. See, the devil's on a leash. He can only do what God permits. We see this especially in verses 15 and 16 when the serpent spews water out of his mouth to carry away the woman by a flood. God causes the earth to open its mouth and swallow up that dragon in a flood. I'm sorry, swallow, yeah, swallow up the dragon and all of his schemes. So the message of 
Revelation 12 is that the sovereign God is your refuge and your strength in the midst of the devil's rage. In the midst of the devil's temptations, God is your refuge and strength. In the midst of the devil's persecution, trials, God is your strength. The child and his blood have guaranteed our salvation, our victory over the principalities and the powers. So, Christ the King, church, let's, let's take refuge in God now and for the rest of our lives. Let's take refuge in God and then we'll have nothing to fear. We'll have nothing to worry about. Nothing to be anxious about. The things of this week and this year that, that tend to dominate our minds, they're not the main story. Jesus sits on the throne in heaven and he laughs at all the nations, all of Satan's attempts throughout all of history to thwart his purposes. In your life, in your family, in the whole world. He laughs at those schemes. It can't be done. They won't be successful. So my final word to you today in the sermon is just trust Jesus. Rest in Christ all the time for everything. And know that whatever difficult things happen to you or to us, they're not primarily the purposes of of Satan, but ultimately the purposes of God for his people. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, for giving us this passage about our victory in you. Thank you for the confidence that we can have in your orchestration of everything from your throne in heaven. And we thank you for forgiving us, our sins. Because we know that without the blood of the Lamb, your blood, we would be your enemies. We would be on the wrong side of history if you had not chosen us in your grace to save us. We thank you for that salvation and we ask that you would help us to live it out. We ask that this week, You would help us to have a perspective on history, on our lives, on our trials. That is your perspective. The perspective that we see in your word. Give us grace to do these things, to rest in you and and do it for the sake of your kingdom, Jesus. Amen.